7th, 2008, and our message this morning is called Non-Perishable. I'd like you to go to Genesis 42. I want to see if I can feed you something today besides just the potluck meal after the service. Uh, some things have happened recently that made me think about what it means to have something non-perishable or incorruptible. Uh, everybody knows that our thoughts have been dominated by all of the hurricanes in the Gulf and what that means for the people that live along the Gulf Coast, what it means for uh, people in Cuba, what it means for people in Jamaica and the Bahamas. It is an amazing thing, but CJ, would you like it if I gave you a Lamborghini? Yeah, you'd like that, wouldn't you? Yeah, see, that's a good way to catch a young man's attention that's gazing into the parking lot. If I gave him a Lamborghini, that would be worth something, wouldn't it? It really would. But what if there was no gasoline? How much would it be worth then? Then it's just kind of like an obstacle in your driveway, isn't it? See, our circumstances determine what something's worth. That's called perceived value. Have you ever bought a diamond ring and then later tried to pawn it? And I know none of you have never been desperate. I have. The same diamond ring that you pay thousands of dollars for, suddenly when you go to pawn it, is worth hundreds. Why? I mean, did, did it fade? Uh, Oh, well, it's because it's used. Isn't this thing millions of years old anyway? Well, what is the difference? It has to do with the perception of value. Uh, I wrote in your bulletin about the MasterCard series, and so I don't want to go through all of that again. But do you remember the Priceless series of commercials? You know, this was $2, this was $6, this was Priceless. As I began thinking about that, and I will share one of those commercials with you later, I started to think about what is truly Priceless in our lives. I thought about it a lot too while my friend Buzz was here. At this point in his life, God spoke something to him about his grandkids. He said, you'd be the best grandfather to those grandkids that you can possibly be. You know, that kind of revelation is priceless. It really is. You usually don't hear about it until you, after something's happened and it's passed and you miss the opportunity. In fact, aren't a lot of things like that? You could care less whether or not your five-gallon gas can has gas in it until you need it for a generator because your power is out. And then suddenly, what wouldn't you give for that five gallons of gas? Huh? Air is one of the more abundant things on the planet. Do you ever think about what happens if it runs out? Probably not, unless you're in a situation in which it becomes scarce. Then you cherish each breath. One of the things that I hope to do, and of course I wrote to you about in the bulletin, is to think this morning about what it is in your life that truly is non-perishable. By the way, I guess I ought to give you a definition of perishable. Webster says that to be perishable is to be subject to decay, spoilage, or destruction. Wouldn't you think normally of gold as a non-perishable item? I would, right? I mean, it's not like it's going to grow mold. It's not like it's going to uh, suddenly lose value. Or is it? Do you think that right now in Cuba, with a Category 4 hurricane over people, if there is uh, five feet of floodwaters in somebody's house, how valuable would a few thousand pounds of gold be? There's nowhere to spend it. There's nothing that you could buy for it. There's nothing left to get. At different times in history, barrels of cash have been worth nothing. In fact, you can go in Houston to Rice Village right now to coin collectors, and they have buckets 
buckets of paper money that were once worth something in a society that are now not worth anything. An awful lot of things that men greatly value one day will be worth absolutely nothing. What is it that you value in your life? More than that, what's been invested in you? These are things that are worth contemplating. They really are. Are you in Genesis 42? You ever seen somebody really proud of something new they have? I saw a lady one time get a mink coat. And my goodness, she sashayed by everywhere that she went. It's the middle of summer and she was wearing it in church. And uh, to me it looked like a rabbit or any other kind of fur I'd ever seen. Very, very important to her. How important do you think that mink coat would be in the middle of a famine, though? You can't eat it. Yeah, at some point, everything that we own becomes really not all that important, doesn't it? In Genesis 42, there is a time period in Egypt's history that is unlike anything that has ever come upon the world. The known world is experiencing a famine. And in Genesis 42, starting in the sixth verse, it says, Now Joseph was the governor of the land. Isn't that interesting? We have a Jewish boy who is cast out by his brothers because he had his father's favor and had supernatural vision elevated to the highest position in the known world. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the one who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers... He recognized them, but pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. (laughs) Uh, How many of you shop at a grocery store 60 miles away? Probably not very many, huh? You, you You might drive a few extra blocks to a grocery store that you think is a little cheaper. Can you imagine having to cross most of a continent... To get food? Most of us will never see those kinds of circumstances. Would you say that men had to be desperate to do this? Joseph had received a vision that said, store up things, there's going to be seven years in which God will be so abundantly good to you that you can store things and it will provide because there are seven years coming in which everything that you own will be worthless except the food that you have to eat. That's an interesting situation to be in. They just wanted to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. That's because 20 years have passed since they mistreated him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said, You are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my Lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. The setting here before we move on, is a worldwide famine has been going on for about two years. But because of the seven years of plenty before it, nobody had really considered that things could get bad. At one time in my life, I made three times the amount of money in a year that I had made the previous year. So what do you think that I did with it? I spent it. (laughs) That's right, it seemed abundant, right? I bought two new cars, a house, and decided to have a baby. Still got the baby. Sold the cars, sold the house, moved into an apartment. 
It never occurred to me that because I made X amount of dollars in one year that the next year I might only make half. How many people think like that? Right? And if you do think like that all the time, not only are you abnormal, you're in a select industry in the United States called investments. <laughs> you know? And I, having been one of those guys in the past, can tell you they don't do it personally. Okay? Not very many of us are disciplined enough to consider what happens if next year I make half of what I did this year. Having said that, I'm not at all concerned with your investment strategies. It's just that the whole world was lulled into a false sense of security because God had been so abundantly merciful to them that they acted as if there would never come a day in which the mercy would run out. Every week, Israel went through a cycle. They worked very hard. They collected food. They uh, took care of their families because there was a day coming every week in which no man could work. And what you did on the sixth day had to carry you through the seventh day. What happens if you didn't work hard on the sixth day? You had nothing to carry you through the seventh day. Isn't that interesting? Hebrews picks up on that principle and says, there yet remains a Sabbath day's rest for God's people. But do you know who it's not a rest for? Those who didn't work hard in the previous six days. Turn with me to Genesis uh, 45. In 45, we're going to be in the first verse. What I'd hoped you got from the first, by the way, is just Joseph's position, that he is head over all of the world, and that the condition of the world was in famine. Now we are in Genesis 45, starting in the first verse. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. By the way, I I can't allow myself to get distracted on it, but there's a day coming when Jesus will be revealed to his fleshly brothers, the Israelites, and the whole world will see his compassion for them in the same way that Pharaoh heard about Joseph crying. And you know what? He's not ashamed of it. All you got to do is read the book of Zechariah, but that's another message. The third verse, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Mm. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been a famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a very great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler of all of Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says, God has made me Lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen near me, you and your children and grandchildren and your flocks and herds and all you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. 
Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. Can you imagine saying with certainty from Egypt that people that lived anywhere between what is today Syria and all the way south to Egypt were all most certainly going to die and become destitute if they did not obey your actual words? This must have been a pretty powerful famine, a famine like the world had never seen. It's interesting that Jesus mentions a time of trouble coming that will be unequaled from the beginning of the world until then. I think in this you see a great picture of eschatology, but this is not what I want to preach about today. Joseph had been expendable to his brothers. But at this moment in time, he suddenly become priceless to them. Expendable because they saw no merit in his vision. Expendable because they didn't really like him. Maybe he didn't wear his clothes the same way they did. And they sold him out. But at this moment, Joseph is suddenly priceless. Grain had been of very little value when they sold Joseph into Egypt because it was so abundant, it was everywhere. At this moment, they would give their very lives to provide grain for the rest of their families. Obedience. Obedience had meant very little in the beginning. They didn't do what their daddy told them to do. They didn't do what God wanted them to do. And now, God has brought them to a place and time in history where obedience is the only thing that will save their lives. Isn't it interesting that we preach messages on the mercy of God and the grace of God acting as if there is never a day or a time in which they run out? See, while it's abundant, we can swim in it. It's greasy grace. But there is a day in which an accounting must be given for everything that we've been given. There is a day in which a Jewish brother who was sold out will be Lord of all of the earth and suddenly obedience to Him is the only thing that will have saved your lives. Isn't it good that they found out about this in the second year of the famine? If it had been three years, they might not have made it. How long can you live without food? Isn't that an interesting thought? I found in a book this week an inscription. Before I read you the inscription, y'all seem so heavy, I think, that I've already beat you rather than fed you. Anybody know who Mr. Bill is? The little Gumby-looking character? Yeah, oh no, Mr. Bill! Mr. Bill did a a MasterCard commercial, and this is undoubtedly because MasterCard doesn't have enough money to pay a real actor, so they had to get a little clay figure. And Mr. Bill goes, and he gets a cup of coffee. And, of course, because Mr. Bill's a little accident prone, MasterCard says, cup of coffee, $2. And then it spills on Mr. Bill, and he melts, right? Then Mr. Bill's magically reconstituted, and uh, they say, gym membership. And Mr. Bill's on a treadmill, right? $59 a month. And then Mr. Bill gets squished in the treadmill. Magically reconstituted again. Briefcase. And Mr. Bill's standing on a briefcase. And the poor briefcase closes on Mr. Bill and cuts off his head. Mr. Bill's having a rough day. The briefcase was $120. Making it through the day safely? Priceless. Yeah. See, it depends on your circumstances to what you value. You take for granted that you got here safely in your car? Right, I did. It never even crossed my mind that I wouldn't get here safely in my car today. 
till somebody you know dies in a car crash. And then for at least a few days, a few weeks, you thank God every moment that you're driving in a car. What I hope to do today is not scare you about the mercy of God or the grace of God. My hope is to get us to think about the things that He does every day for us that are priceless and learn what to treasure. So there was an inscription that was found and this inscription was found in the ninth century, 19th century rather, in what was then Saudi Arabia and is now considered to be Yemen. This inscription said, as written in marble, preserved for all time, said that there had been seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of ruin. And people as far away from Yemen were lamenting that they were dying. And the last words of the inscription said, because they did not give thanks to God during the seven years of plenty. Now these were undoubtedly not Jewish people. Uh, I mean, there were Jews in Yemen, but nothing about this inscription lends you to believe that they were Jews. The point being that as far away from Egypt as Yemen, they had felt this. It also is an interesting thing because it confirms what the scriptural account says from a non-biblical source. In 1850, the tomb of a Yemenite woman was found, not all that far from the inscription. It was discovered by a guy named Eben Hashem. <laughs> interesting. It means son of the name. Yeah, how about that? In this tomb, there was a skeleton. And on the skeleton's right arm, there were seven braids of pearls. This dates all the way to the, to the time of Joseph, somewhere around 1,800 years before Jesus. Seven strings of pearls. On the left arm, there were gold bracelets and where there used to be fingers, rings with every precious stone. The tomb was noticed because a, a flood caused it to be visible uh, washed away dirt, and when it went in, it was so ornate and beautiful, they thought that it must be royalty. In this tomb, there was an inscription. The woman was bitter, angry. She had sent her servant, her chief servant, to a man named Joseph, but could obtain no food. See, apparently, because the grain storehouses were only so big, and Joseph had done what God wanted him to do, and Pharaoh had empowered Joseph under God's command as a wise and discerning man. Apparently, Joseph had to determine and decide who to give grain to and who not to. And no amount of this woman's money could keep her alive. Isn't that interesting? Wouldn't you think that in the commercial, diamonds are forever? Would you have traded a fistful of diamonds for a fistful of grain if it was your last meal? Probably so. These things ought to make us think occasionally about what is priceless. Turn with me to Amos 8. Amos will be to the right in your Bibles. If you happen to have a Thompson chain, it's page 1,023. Yeah, and the archaeological Bible is page 1,453. 58. Tell me when you're there. there. Y'all wake up this morning. Help me out. Amos 8, starting in verse 9. In that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon, the 
and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious feasts into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine throughout the land. Not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. One of the problems for us in America that we need to be honest about, not just America, all of Christianized Europe is the same way. It happened to them before it happened to us. One of the serious issues is there's nothing rare about the Word of God for us. In fact, have you ever wondered this? How many of you own a piece of gold? You can raise your hand if you own a piece of gold. I'm not talking about a bar. I'm talking about a piece. Anybody got a gold wedding ring? Gold earrings? Right? Almost everybody in the church has got something gold. If not gold, how about silver? Almost everybody in the church has got something that is either gold or silver. And yet, why is it value again? valuable again? Oh, because it's so rare. But all of you have it, right? It's rare, but all of you have it. How does that work? We say that the Word of God is precious, but because everybody has it, does anybody really treat it as precious? Some do. Some do. But not very many. One of the problems that we have is that you can turn on the TV and somebody is preaching. And if you don't like what they're preaching, you change the channel. And someone else will be preaching. And if you flip long enough, you will find a minister of every color, a minister of every gender, a minister of every particular persuasion, and you can shop like you were buying a chicken McNugget. If I don't like this one, then Chick-fil-A sells one. If I don't like those, then one of the chicken stores will sell one. You find what you want. I'm suggesting that there is a time in our lives when you get dissatisfied with what everyone else has. In fact, you begin to see it as something that is perishable because it has not sustained anyone. It has not sustained you. And you start looking for something that is imperishable, something that doesn't fade, something that doesn't decay, something that doesn't spoil, something that can't be destroyed. God allows famine to come into our lives for one reason, to drive us towards Him to show us that the source of life is rare and so that we don't take advantage of His mercy. Turn to Psalm 19. In Psalm 19... Okay, I'm going to substitute a word. And I'm going to substitute this word every time I see anything that has to do with God's spoken or written word. Is that fair enough? I'm not tricking you. You already understand it. Okay? The Bible of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The Bible of the Lord is trustworthy, making wise the simple. The Bible of the Lord is right, giving joy to the heart. The Bible of the Lord is radiant, giving light to the eyes. The Bible of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The Bible of the Lord is sure and altogether righteous. The Bible is more precious than gold, than much pure gold. 
the Bible is sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By the Bible is your servant warned. In keeping the Bible, there is great reward. How many of you think of the book in your lap that way? Not in an abstract sense, but if we weren't on this subject and I asked you what you had in your lap sitting there, would respond with this kind of affection. See, because the Gideons have put one in every hospital room, because there's one in every hotel room, because you have more than one in your house on a regular basis, it doesn't feel priceless to us. Have you ever complained because you had to pay too much for a Bible? If you won't admit to it, I will. My very first Bible that I bought, I still have, I've protected it. Those of you that are close to me know that almost the only thing that I will lash out at someone about that is material is how you handle my Bible. My kids aren't in here. I don't like them to hold it. I don't like the way that they support it. I don't like when people grab it and let one side of it hang down while they read the other side. It it unnerves me. It's not because I paid $120 for my Bible. I can spend $120 on a meal sometimes and not think a thing about it. I wouldn't sell you my Bible for $1,290. I wouldn't sell it to you for $12,000 because I've experienced God through it. So you could say a Bible $120, but to me, it's priceless. How sweet it is when we really realize the things that are truly priceless in our life. How about this one? A new start in life. What would you pay to be completely new and stand before everybody you know as a new creation. Isn't that priceless? And it's found in the Word of God. How about the price of a good name? Are there places you go that you hesitate to mention your name? Because they might have remembered a time when, whatever. Yeah. I spent a few years after I was born again in my hometown telling every person I met without fail every time. Hi, I'm Eric. Uh, I think we met before. I was born again because my name was not good. How about the trust and confidence of your peers and your spouse? What would you pay for that? Let me, let me ask you something. Let's turn this around another way. The value of trust and confidence of your peers. If you have it, it doesn't seem very valuable when you don't have it. When you feel like you have a scarlet letter around your neck when you walk into a room, what would you pay to have it removed? When you feel like everybody that hears you speak says, but you know who they are, what would you pay for a good name? Is that not valuable? It's delivered to you through the Word of God. How about another chance to show a relative that's now gone? how much you love them. What would you pay for that? My friend Gary Williams reminds me almost every time I talk to him because both of his parents are gone. He says, you love on your parents. Don't let anything get between you and them. He says it almost every time. And at first I was annoyed by it. You know, like, Gary, my parents and I are fine. Till I realized from his perspective he didn't have his anymore. What is that worth? What would you give to be able to do that? Well, the Bible won't give you a chance to go back in time and fix that. But the Word of God that says don't let the sun go down, 
while you're still angry? Or leave your gift at the altar and go make peace? Obedience to the Word of God will keep you from ever being in that position. How about the spiritual, emotional, and physical well-being of your children? What would you pay for that? What would you pay to know that your children would never get sick? Or if they got sick, they would get healed? What would you pay to know that your children would grow up as secure, confident, strong? Now, all the mothers in here are nodding their head. That is an amazing thing. I know mothers that agonize daily over children that are 40 years old. And on the one hand, I go, come on, man, they were emancipated at 18, or they should have been. And on the other, I realize, that's just a mama. God put it in you to care. How about this one? How priceless is a guilt-free conscience that's assured of a divine purpose in your life in favor? What would you pay for that? And it's delivered through the Word of God. You never think about the value of these things until you're robbed from them. What is being robbed of a divine purpose and a guilt-free conscience? That's somebody who is sitting there that has no purpose in life and is contemplating killing themselves. But you don't think about that unless it happens. What is the value of that? How about this one? How about on the last week of your life, having a sense of feeling. Gabe, picture this. You're sitting on the porch with your wife. You're old and gray. I know that's hard for you to picture. It was hard for me to picture people that I know that are now old and gray. Old and gray. I'm getting them on my chest and I'm parts of my beard because it's gray. You're old and gray sitting on your porch and you can honestly lean back Sit and tell your wife, sweetie, we did it. We accomplished the reason that God put us on the earth. If I died tomorrow, we did it. What would that feeling be worth? See, these are the things that are priceless in life. How dare we pursue anything other than those? And yet, the words of prophecy this morning in my own life demonstrate that they all have strong competitors. It seems that I also care, not just that I'm going to eat, but what I eat. I also care not just that I'm clothed, but what kind of clothes. I also care about all of those other things. And if you are not careful, the truly priceless things become not valuable to you at all. And the things that are destined to perish with use, destined to perish become something you've lived your whole life for. Everybody in here can at some point acknowledge that you've heard all the stories about funerals and all of those things, that you've known people that have lived all their life for material things, and what a sad, pitiable position that it is. But how many of us can clearly identify the areas of our lives where we do that? You ever traded something material for a few more minutes with your parents? You ever let inconvenience cost you something with your children? Yeah, see, I already have. I'm only 33 years old and I've done both of those things many times. 
I wanted this morning to get you to think for a little while about what it is that's priceless. And what <laughs> Papa Song said it. Who are you and what are you doing here? You're here to amass a bunch of uh, gradu. That's a nice Cajun way to say the crap that's stuck in the pan when you're done cooking. Is that what you're here to amass? Or do you want to be rich in another way? Paul said that he could be rich while possessing nothing. How is that possible? The book of Matthew declares that teachers of the law are like men who bring out treasures stored up for you. Treasure. It seems that if we can't touch it and feel it, we don't often value it. We have a value perception problem. But I want to tell you, even things that you can hold, like gold and silver, we sing about in songs. Lord, You are more precious than gold and silver. Nothing I have compares with You. And we lie to Him. We lie to Him. You know how I know? I'm sitting at a border in Mexico and my truck is not running right. And I am considering that I should stop the mission trip and go fix the truck. Wouldn't that make the truck more important than what God told me to do? Yeah, and I didn't miss it that time, but I have missed it other times. See, I want to live a life that values what God says will never perish. Come with me to Corinthians 15. Are you all hungry? You hungry for something that is going to go in your mouth and pass through your body and will be forgotten in four hours? Or are you hungry for the Word? The honesty of children. You ever met somebody in life that really didn't crave food at all? Not very many of them. I was raised by one. And, uh, you know, eat once a day is fine. I'll snack. I'll have dinner. And you look and say, what was dinner? It's this little piece of cheese. I was never that way. I apparently have more Esau in me than... I'd like to admit, but there are times when I literally think, you know, I'd give anything for a lobster and a T-bone, you know? Yeah, see, I'm making you hungry, aren't I? I'd give anything for a crawfish boil today, right? Boiled crabs? Am I getting your attention at all? No? Chocolate cake? No? Well, Brad's hard to motivate. I don't know what to say. And right after you obtain it, an hour after you obtain it, you almost feel sick for having eaten it, right? We went to a buffet the other day, and I tell you, it was unbelievable. Uh, I was allowed to put whatever ingredients I wanted, and they cooked it. And when they cooked it, it was delightful. So I didn't stop at a half a plate when I was full, and I didn't stop at the whole plate, or the second, or the third. At one point, I paused and I asked my friends, you know, this is obscene. I really shouldn't, shouldn't do this, huh? And I said, oh, no, go ahead. You're having a good time. That would be like blaming them. But it's me who went back again and ate more. They can attest that 45 minutes later when I was gripping the sides of the seat and the door in the truck and sweating like I was uh, in labor <laughs> and no bathroom could be found that suddenly what I had greatly valued earlier not only had no value, it was a detriment to me. Now, y'all can't relate to that at all, huh? 
Of course you can relate to that. What I'm suggesting, saints, is that many times what looks pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining knowledge is really a detriment to us in the end. And we have to value what God wants us to value. All right, are you in Corinthians 15? Let's start in 42. 15, verse 42. Tell me when you're there. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. Get me. Let me define this. The body that is sown is subject to decay, spoilage, and destruction. The body that is raised will not decay, spoil, or be destroyed. Well, that's fine. We're talking about a glorified body one day, right? At some point, you'll be imperishable. I want to suggest an alternate reading for you. That is the correct one. I'm not saying that it's not. Absolutely, this could not be more clearly talking about a resurrected body that you'll get. You're not righteous yet, and yet you're called righteous because it's credited to you. Do we have to wait for the imperishable to arrive before we try to put it on? What I'm saying here, saints, is that many of the things that we value are destined to perish. Do we have to wait till a perfected body comes before we begin living and acting like we're already imperishable, valuing the things that God does? Listen to how he says it. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised... A spiritual body. Do you have to wait for this to begin being spiritually focused? If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural and after that the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man from heaven. Do you have to wait? for the body that is prepared for you in heaven before you begin to act like the heavenly man. Who can tell me what kind of garment Jesus wore? I mean, who made it? Was it Versace? Armani? Who made it? Apparently it was unimportant or else it would have been written about. Can you tell me what kind of food Jesus ate other than that he ate a Jewish diet? Can you tell me what kind of house he lived in? But what kind of car or mule or donkey or anything else he drove? You really can't, can you? What is it that we've allowed to define our lives? Isn't that a good question? What stands out about your life? And then ask yourself the question, is it perishable or imperishable? Is it going to last into eternity? Is it truly priceless or is it not? The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As it was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. If we are of heaven, then we need to value the things that heaven values. Another way Paul said this to Timothy, no soldier concerns himself with civilian affairs. What does that mean? Does that mean you don't need to eat? Does that mean you don't have to go to work? Because you're a soldier in the army of the Lord that you're not concerned with life at all? 
No, it means what the next verse says. His aim is to please the one who enlisted him as an officer, his commanding officer. This means that we value what God tells us to value and nothing else. But honestly, saints, can we say that we're doing that on a regular basis? In some areas I am, and some I'm not. It's funny, it's not till people that you love are in jeopardy that you're concerned about their daily life. Isn't that interesting? All of us have spent time on the phone with each other this week wondering how is so-and-so and where is so-and-so and they're okay. But did you think about them at all the day before? Well, you can't walk around pressed with concern about everybody all the time, and I'm not suggesting that you should, but I am suggesting it gives us the opportunity to point to what it is that is important and what it is that is really priceless. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth, and as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Are you called to do that just at the resurrection or are you called to do it now? You're called to do it now, aren't you? How would you identify Jesus? Tell me, was he good looking or not? Did he have brown eyes, blue eyes, green eyes, hazel eyes? What color was his hair? How tall was he? Why are all of those descriptions missing from the Word of God? Because they were unimportant. How would you know Jesus if He were sitting in the room with you? Only by what He did. So how are you going to bear His likeness? Wow, that's an interesting question. When I grew out my hair, I know that seems impossible now, but in 1993 I started to grow out my hair because I had, like a typical dumb youth, thought of the private school that I grew up in and the household that I grew up in as something that I needed to be liberated from because we weren't allowed to have our hair touch our collar in school. And I also was not allowed to grow any stubble on my face. We had an old football coach that checked our face in line with a credit card. If it made too much noise, you had to shave. Actually, we had a principal who made me shave one time in the men's bathroom with no hot water and a women's leg razor. I never asked you where you got that. Uh, so the first thing that I did was grow out my hair and grow a big bushy beard. And I wore sandals. And you know what people said? He's trying to look like Jesus. Really? What is it that Jesus looked like? And how would you know if you saw him? The Bible contains no real descriptors of him except what he did. So how are you going to bear the likeness of the man from heaven? I ask you. It has to be by what you do. And what you do shows where you place value. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. There is a day coming when your actual body will transform in the twinkling of an eye, period. I've taught that so much that I hope you already know it. But that change process, not of your physical body, but of the descriptors of Jesus, what would make you look like Jesus, were supposed to begin the day you got born again. And it's why we named this ministry Life-Changing Ministries. Because your lives are in the process of changing. And in what way do they change? 
They change because you no longer place value on things that are perishable, but on the imperishable. You no longer live your life for the accumulation of things, but you live your life to be something that God can work through. This makes you more like Jesus every day. And one step closer to a body that will never die, that is called imperishable, but it starts with a lifestyle that will never die. Are you hearing me at all, saints? Have I picked a message that's too abstract? Okay, before we go to 1 Peter, I need to set a setting for you. Okay? And by the way, 1 Peter is the last scripture I'm going to read you today. Does that excite you? Because I'm going to read you the whole chapter. (laughs) All right. Before we go to 1 Peter, I want to set a setting for you. A guy named Nero, yeah, uh, Nero, was born in AD 37. He died in office in A.D. 68. Nero's an interesting guy. I want to let you know a little bit about his character. You can decide whose image he best fits, the regular earthly man or the man from heaven. He killed his stepbrother because his stepbrother was a rival to the throne. So he murdered him. Uh, While he was married, he had a mistress. And the mistress didn't like his mom. So he killed his mom. Yeah. You thought your wife didn't like your mother. Oh, that mistress? She was the wife of his friend. Yeah, we're describing a real failure of moral character, aren't we? Later, that very same mistress that was the wife of his friend that caused him to kill his mother got pregnant by him. Think Nero was a good daddy? He kicked her in the stomach until she and the baby died. Because he was now short a a sweet thing in his life, his eyes turned inward to the palace. And a woman that he had been raised with that was considered a sister because of marriage, he decided he'd like to marry. That's nice, isn't it? She refused, so he killed her. Later, he slept with a woman. And then when she returned home to her husband, he was jealous, so he killed the husband. This is the same guy that martyred both Peter and Paul. And what history remembers him well for is that he excelled in the circus games beyond any other emperor in memory. He started something that has gone down in history called the Neronian Persecutions. A fire broke out in Rome. History says that he fiddled naked on the palace balcony while singing songs about the destruction of Troy because he set the fire. Nobody knows if that's true. But what we do know is that he blamed that fire on the Christian community and the Jewish community. And when I say and there, you need to realize that at this time, 100% of what we are calling a Christian community is Jewish. So blaming the Jews, whether they are believers in Messiah or not, was just expedient. And so persecution broke out all over the place and people were being killed. It's in that venue that we'll start First Peter. Because First Peter is written during the last couple of years of Nero's life, during what is known as the Neronian persecution. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world. You know how you know when you're a stranger in the world? Anybody want a good definition for that? Nobody does? Yeah, I 
When the world seems strange to you, and hear me, saints, you seem strange to the world. If the world's ways don't seem strange to you, and if your ways don't seem strange to the world, then maybe you're not a stranger in the world, and that is what you're called to be. Scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Why were you chosen? For obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood. Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth. Couldn't we say new birth is priceless? We've kind of joked and coined the term, born again again. If being born again is getting a fresh new start in life, your past not being counted against you, but you're being credited with righteousness, I've had to do it many times and may have to do it more times as you know me. In fact, we find out that being born again is choosing to walk in a new life. Is that priceless? It's the most valuable thing that I have. In fact, any of you in here that know me, I'm assuming that all of you do or you wouldn't be here, and if a couple of you like me, anything that you like about me is absolutely 100% derived from the fact that I got a new birth. You understand that? After 15 years, I have lived longer saved than as a sentient human being unsaved. So everything that you see in my life today that in any way is praiseworthy is the result of our God giving me a new birth. That's priceless. Any way you look at it. Into a living hope. To have hope. Hope that adapts to your circumstances. Hope that makes adjustments for where you are in life. Is that not priceless? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. The inheritance that we receive is priceless. But if you keep reading, we don't just get it at the end. We're receiving it now. One of the ways that you receive it now is when we're obedient to the Word of God, all of these priceless things become a part of your life, like the reconciliation with loved ones. Because it's impossible to walk with God without doing that. You understand? It's impossible to love God and hate someone. So a priceless thing that is the result of living for God is that you fall into a situation where you become at peace with everyone. Priceless. In this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. If you read about the Neronian persecution, you realize that this is almost tongue-in-cheek. It's a little bit like, you know, if I cut off my own legs and my mom says, oh, you'll be fine, it's a scratch. She knows it's not a scratch, it's an attempt at humor to dissuade you or to distract you from the seriousness of the situation. Peter treats it as light and momentary, just like Paul does. Even though they're giving their lives daily, Nemo lit Christians on fire 
He dipped them in tar and lit them on fire to light the streets in Rome. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes. Did you know gold perishes? I'd never thought of gold as perishing. I mean, if you set a bar of gold out in the parking lot and you come back in a thousand years, there'll still be a bar of gold there, right? So in what way does it perish? The things that this world values, there's a day coming when no one will value it. How good is your Visa card if there is no electricity and you can't get to an ATM machine? How good is it? It simply becomes a piece of plastic, doesn't it? If you've never gone to Walmart and seen the shelves empty, you're missing an experience. What people value really has no value at all, but being where God tells you to be, when He tells you to be there, doing what He said to do, that's priceless. Of greater worth than gold which perishes, even though it's refined by fire, may be proved genuine and result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and are filled with inexpressible, glorious joy. How priceless is inexpressible, glorious joy? I spend most of the time trying to tell the church that they need more of it. The Word says you already have it. Maybe you don't value it enough to bring it out and show us every once in a while. But the Word says that you already have it and are filled with it. For you are receiving. Do you hear the tense of those words? For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's the restoration, the deliverance of your mind, will, emotions, and your very spirit. You're receiving that now, not just at a resurrection. Every time God teaches you a priceless principle that you live and causes you to avoid pain and live in a, at harmony with Him and with man. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of this grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest of care trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when He predicted the suffering of the Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. How priceless is that? To know that for a few thousand years, people lived and wrote down their experiences and suffered martyrdom for you so that you would better understand what God had done for you. Is that not priceless? What if three people that you knew had spent their entire life chronicling things and then were ultimately murdered for you? How might that make you feel? One of my favorite themes in these movies, uh, it kills me, uh, three guys go into war, two die, and the third lives for the rest of his life with a guilty, plagued conscience. Why wasn't it me? And those men died that I might live. And I understand it. I'm not belittling it. This book tells stories of hundreds of thousands of men who did that for us and we take it for granted every day. It's priceless, saints. Even angels long to look into these things. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. 
Since you call on a Father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. A stranger in an area is not trying to amass for himself a castle. A stranger in an area is not building his life with any level of permanence in that place. A stranger is simply observing and contributing wherever he can as he passes through. Friends, we're not passing through this world. We're going to inherit it. We're going to live on it forever. But we are passing through the world as we know it today because it's perishable. And we're born of something imperishable. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Okay, I've been talking to you the entire time about what you value. That you need to value things that are often intangible, that are truly priceless. For the last couple minutes, I want to tell you about God valuing you. Could God have sent a truckload of gold on your behalf? Of course. Could He sent cattle on a thousand hills? Of course. And at times in history, He's given mankind both. But what is it that He used to redeem you? It was the only thing that He had that was in short supply. The only thing that was truly rare. The only thing that would never fade in value. He used the most precious substance that the world has ever known. The blood of His own Son. See, if it doesn't cost you something, if you give out of your abundance, then what good is it? But if you give the rarest, most precious thing that you have, the value perceived ought to be very, very high, should it not? So what did he buy with his son's life? You. He bought you with his son's life. You will see people at some point in history trade their cars for food. You'll see people take the mark of the beast to try to keep a baby fed. I promise it will happen as surely as I live here now. You will see people trading their riches trying to stay alive. I met more men that said they didn't care whether they lived or died until they were dying and then they spent their entire fortune trying to stay alive. Our God is not like that. He gave the only thing that was absolutely irreplaceable for you to show you how much He values you in a way that could never depreciate, in a way that could never fade, in a way that communicates beyond just reason and straight into the heart of everybody that has either been a son or daughter or a mother or father. He gave the most precious thing that He had. How much do you think He values you then? Do you have anything precious to you? Anything that maybe has sentimental value? Something that you would just, you'd like to keep if you couldn't keep anything else? I mean, if your house was being destroyed by a tornado in three minutes, what would you take? 
Whatever that is, can you imagine giving it up for Elizabeth? Or CJ? Or Adam? Or Jacob? Judah or Jeremiah? God did even more than that for each one of us. How valuable are you to feel? You think you might prepare your mind for action? Think you might live in a holy way? You think you might get serious about God when you think about it in those terms? You might examine where your priorities are and what you're invested in? Have you ever compromised the Word of God to keep your job? Jobs come and go. Have you ever compromised the Word of God to make a spouse happy? It's unfortunate that spouses come and go. You ever compromise the Word of God to win the affection of your children? Their affection's fickle. It comes and goes. There's only one thing in this world that is truly priceless, and it's what Psalm 19 and Psalm 119 says. It's the only thing that has the power to revive your very soul and bring life to the dead. It's the Word of God. And we need to apprise it more than anything else. Just because you're in the years of plenty, don't take it for granted Or when the years of famine come upon you, you will not have enough stored up in you. And you may not be able to buy more. Read the churches in the book of Revelation. See about the ones that thought that they were rich and were really poor. See what the Spirit of God says to us. We need to value what He values. And above all else, He values us. So we better value each other. When I tell you to pray for each other at the altar... It's because that's what God wants us to do. When I tell you to love each other and serve each other, it's because it's what He wants us to do. He's already invested in you. When I preached to you last week and tell you not to consider anybody too short to be saved, not to count out the alcoholic aunt or the abusive father, I'm telling you that because that's where God values people. I'm going to read to you a couple more words, then we're going to close. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through Him you believe in God, who raised Him from the dead and glorified Him so that your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have been purified, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have a sincere love for your brothers, Love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the Word that was preached to you. He wrote this during enormous duress, but with uncommon serenity. I don't have time to tell you about it, but to the point where people questioned the timing that it could have been written in because they said there was no way that a man could write a letter with this kind of peace and serenity in it if he was in fact in the Neronian persecution. And I thought to myself, you don't know the priceless nature of our faith. Because you can stand in a jail cell and be free. And you can stand in a palace and be a prisoner. 
Saints, God has given us something that is priceless. And He wants us to love one another deeply and treat each other as priceless because He gave the most priceless substance on the planet for you because He values you. And He didn't just do it for you, He did it for the person on your left and right. Y'all ready to eat? Stand your feet. We'll pray.